God's inspired word this morning to Romans chapter 6. As we continue our consideration of the wonderful truth of our justification by faith alone in Christ alone, we read Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Know ye not that so many of us as were baptized into Jesus Christ were baptized into his death? Therefore we are buried with him by baptism into death, that like as Christ was raised up from the dead by the glory of the Father, even so we also should walk in newness of life. For if we have been planted together in the likeness of his death, we shall be also in the likeness of his resurrection. Knowing this, that our old man is crucified with him, that the body of sin might be destroyed, that henceforth we should not serve sin. For he that is dead is freed from sin. Now if we be dead with Christ, we believe that we shall also live with him, knowing that Christ, being raised from the dead, dieth no more. Death hath no more dominion over him. For in that he died, he died unto sin once, but in that he liveth, he liveth unto God. Likewise reckon ye also yourselves to be dead indeed unto sin, but alive unto God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body, that ye should obey it in the lust thereof, Neither yield ye your members as instruments of unrighteousness unto sin, but ye yield yourselves unto God as those that are alive from the dead, and your members as instruments of righteousness unto God. For sin shall not have dominion over you, for ye are not under the law, but under grace. What then? Shall we sin because we are not under the law, but under grace? God forbid, know ye not that to whom ye yield yourselves servants to obey, his servants ye are to whom ye obey, whether of sin unto death or of obedience unto righteousness. But God be thanked that ye were the servants of sin, but ye have obeyed from the heart that form of doctrine which was delivered you. Being then made free from sin, ye became the servants of righteousness. I speak after the manner of men because of the infirmity of your flesh. For as ye have yielded your members servants to uncleanness and to iniquity unto iniquity, even so now yield your members servants to righteousness unto holiness. For when ye were the servants of sin, ye were free from righteousness. What fruit had ye then in those things whereof ye are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now being made free from sin and become servants to God, ye have your fruit unto holiness and the end everlasting life. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life. Through Jesus Christ our Lord. I also call your attention to the familiar words of Ephesians 2 verses 8 through 10. For by grace are ye saved through faith and that not of yourselves it is the gift of God. Not of works lest any man should boast for we are his workmanship, created in Christ Jesus unto good works, which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them.
We give our attention this morning to the instruction found in Lord's Day 24 of our Heidelberg Catechism. The Catechism having set forth the truth of our righteousness in Christ, which righteousness is only by a true faith, faith only, the questions are asked in Lord's A24, but why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that the righteousness which can be approved of before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect and in all respects conformable to the divine law and also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. What? Do not our good works merit, which yet God will reward in this and in a future life? This reward is not of merit, but of grace. But doth not this doctrine make men careless and profane? By no means, for it is impossible that those who are implanted into Christ by a true faith should not bring forth fruits of thankfulness. Beloved in the Lord Jesus Christ, the instruction of the Catechism in Lord's Day 24 is inseparably connected with the preceding Lord's Day. In fact, it defends the truth set forth in Lord's Day 23, namely that we are justified by faith only on the ground of the perfect righteousness and satisfaction of Jesus Christ, our Savior. Lord's Day 24 defends that truth over against the attempt to introduce all kinds of works righteousness into that doctrine. And it does that, it defends the truth over against every such attempt by emphatically denying that our good works have any part in obtaining our justification with God. It does that secondly by emphasizing that the reward of good works, for indeed there is a reward, is entirely of grace even as the works themselves are of grace. And thirdly, this Lord's Day defends the truth against the objection that justification by faith alone makes men careless and profane when it comes to living as Christians. Now perhaps you wonder why this subject must be treated so extensively. Clearly the main reason that the, such treatment, extensive treatment is given is because of the controversy with Roman Catholicism in those years following the Great Reformation and the restoration of this beautiful doctrine of justification by faith alone. But must we continue that controversy today? Certainly the truth of righteousness by faith alone is taught in our churches. There's no question about that, is there? But I submit to you, beloved, there are indeed reasons why we must continue to emphasize and to consider this question at length, even apart from the fact that we continue the good practice of preaching through the instruction of the Heidelberg Catechism. And there are, in fact, four and perhaps more reasons to do so. In the first place, we ought to remember that we are still called to stand head-to-head -head against the error of Roman Catholicism. That error is a fatal attack upon the very heart of Christianity. 
We maintain salvation by grace alone. Rome teaches that salvation comes by works which proceed from grace. It's not the grace that saves. It's the works that come from grace. That's a fundamental error. For we read in Romans 11 verse 6, And if by grace, then it is no more of works. Otherwise, grace is no more grace. But if it be of works, then it is no more grace. Otherwise, work is no more work. And when I say we must continue to take our stand over against Roman Catholicism, I make that statement with two thoughts in mind. In the first place, I set that calling before you while I watch numerous evangelical church leaders join hands with Rome. Evangelicals today are moving more and more away from our Reformation heritage and the truth of Scripture and joining heart and hands with Rome. We must avoid that fatal error. In the second place, I remind you of this serious calling because an urgent necessity is laid upon us to preach the gospel not just among ourselves and other Reformed people, but to all to whom God gives us opportunity, including those held in the bosom of Roman Catholicism. The second reason why this truth is still vitally important and must continue to be taught is because the notion that our works have something to do with our righteousness is deeply ingrained in our sinful natures. There's always something that in us that wants to find merit in our works. There's an element of Phariseeism in every one of us. And that's why, although few may come right out and say it, there's a thought, I'm not so bad. We are faithful. And often that comes with the thought, look how bad they are. And so we must have the scripture held before us repeatedly, which show that even our best works are defiled, entirely polluted with sin, and that we are dreadfully wrong if ever we come before God with an attitude, Lord, Lord, I have done this, I have done that. We merit nothing. We can give to God nothing more than what we already owe him. In the third place, this truth must be clearly understood that we might enjoy the blessings of true Christianity. We must stand in the liberty wherewith Christ has made us free. That's certainly my longing for you as it is for our churches. But we cannot stand in that liberty unless we know that Christ has fulfilled all righteousness for us. We cannot live in the freedom of Christ unless we live out of him. There, those who are free certainly do keep God's commandments. Not only that, but we love his commandments. We are deeply troubled when we fail to keep a single one of them. That's the life of a thankful Christian. A life, I say, that is ours only when we know what Christ has done for us. And finally, this, intru this truth is important to develop even at length because it's at the heart of our spiritual peace. Therefore, being justified by faith, we have peace with God through our Lord Jesus Christ. Romans 5 verse 1. You and I 
cannot have a moment's peace with God, except we know that we are forever righteous with him. And that assurance is given us by God by focusing upon Christ, by faith in him. So we necessarily spend additional time with this doctrine today and examine today the relationship between justification and good works. And as we consider the truth set forth in our Heidelberg Catechism, we find these three things. Number one, justification is entirely of grace. Number two, good works are the fruit of justification. And the third thing we consider is the impossibility of a careless Christian. Having considered last time the truth of justification by faith alone, Lord's Day 24 now emphasizes that our justification is entirely of grace. Because the Reformed faith maintains the truth that God is God alone, a sovereign God, the Reformed faith also confesses that salvation is entirely a work of divine grace. Grace alone has always been the pivotal issue in the history of the church. Almost every error concerning man's salvation is an error that has its departure in the denial of grace alone. That denial is often very subtle. Always there are those who, though they speak of salvation by grace, also attribute salvation at least to some extent on the work and ability of man. Yes, salvation's due to the grace of God, they say. But that grace of God cooperates with the will and work of the sinner. Yes, the power of God accomplishes salvation. But that power, they say, takes effect only in connection with the sinner's willingness. And so many will hold, they insist, to salvation by grace. Roman Catholics too. The problem is it's not salvation by grace alone. And what that means is salvation is due to the grace of God and something else rather than to the grace of God alone. So we must be clear in our thinking and in our understanding of Scripture that we are saved by grace means that we are not saved by works. We read in Ephesians 2, verses 8 and 9, For by grace are ye saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. That we are justified by faith, therefore, means that our justification is entirely of grace. There is not a single work that contributes anything to our righteousness before God. Not one. In Galatians 2 verse 16, this truth is emphasized. Knowing that a man is not justified by the works of the law, but by the faith of Jesus Christ, even we have believed in Jesus Christ that we might be justified by the faith of Christ and not by the works of the law. For by the works of the law shall no flesh be justified. The apostle emphasizes that same truth in different words, when he says in Titus 3, verse 5, not by works of righteousness, which we have done, but according to his mercy he saved us 
by the washing of regeneration and renewing of the Holy Ghost. You understand then that this truth takes the matter of salvation entirely out of the hands of the sinner and leaves it absolutely to God. Salvation is a divine work from beginning to end. It's just as much a work of God alone as was the work of creation. And that's true not only when we speak about sovereign election, by which God chooses a church in Christ, that's true also of our justification. As we saw in Lord's A23, God justifies the ungodly. While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. This truth that God sovereignly works salvation and justifies his people through faith, this truth that God is God, that he is the sovereign Lord even in the matter of our righteousness, is not a popular doctrine. When we emphasize that justification is entirely of grace, we don't, our, we don't expect our teaching to meet with general approval. How could it? This doctrine destroys all the pride of sinful man. It presents man as he really is and as scripture presents him. Less than the drop of a bucket and the dust of the balance. It leaves him without any power, no wisdom, no goodness, no glory whatsoever. And it exalts God alone as the sovereign Lord of glory. This doctrine acknowledges that he is the potter, and we are but clay. How could it be expected then that this doctrine that exalts God and lays us low could ever find favor with sinful men? I'm reminded of what happened to Dr. John Gerstner, that well-known Presbyterian theologian who who now is in glory. Dr. Gerstner spoke several years ago at a conference held at our seminary. And he was approached, as he told the story, by a critic of his preaching, a woman who objected strenuously to his holding forth this truth and the associated truth of total depravity. That woman didn't like to hear that. She came up to him after, his, after the service and she held her finger about an inch apart and she criticized him for so much emphasis on sin and she said, you, make me, you made me feel about this big. And he said, lady, I'm sorry. That's, that's much too big. That's fatally big. You and I are a minus quality. And all mankind together with us. Justification can be by faith alone. This truth, for truth it is, this truth meets with many objections. The Catechism in Lord's Day 24 faces those objections. And those objections come down to this. But don't our works count? What do you mean when you say God justifies the ungodly? Do you mean that it, when, when it comes to our righteousness before God, our good works don't matter? Doesn't matter what we've done? 
That's basically the heart of all objections against this truth set forth in Holy Scripture. And our answer to those questions, our unequivocal answer must be, you understand correctly what we said. Yes, indeed, when it comes to our righteousness before God, our works count nothing at all. We merit nothing of our salvation. Nothing at all. Now you understand, I think, that answer is shocking to most everyone. And perhaps when we are not clear in our own minds as to what Scripture teaches, that answer might make us feel uncomfortable. Because the fact is, every religion known to man finds its ultimate salvation, at least in part, upon the works of man. If you do a study of the world's religions, all the pagan religions of those who live in darkness, you will find some sort of works righteousness salvation. And as I implied earlier, that's rooted in the fact that our pride, our sinful pride, refuses to acknowledge that God alone saves and that God alone can save. Man refuses to acknowledge just how sinful he is. He will always deny the truth of total depravity. And that's why also even in the nominally Christian church, our answer, which is the answer of scripture, don't forget, that answer is found unacceptable. At the time of the Reformation, the objections to this truth came from the Roman Catholic Church. The Roman Catholic objection and error has its root in Pelagianism, that ancient heresy that Augustine did battle with. Rather than give up the idea that man's good can merit, Rome denied the truth that justification, our righteousness, is a legal declaration by which the sinner is declared righteous solely for the sake of Christ's perfect satisfaction, righteousness, and holiness and his merits on the cross. Roman Catholics, the Roman Catholic Church teaches Christ merited our perfect righteousness. They teach that. They will say salvation's all of grace. Their language confuses many, as does language in much of the evangelical church world today. But while they speak of the merits of Christ's righteousness, they deny that his righteousness is imputed to us so, that, so as to become the immediate ground of our acceptance with God. According to them, the merits of Christ acquired a regenerating grace which then is infused into one's heart at baptism so as to wipe out all past sin and enable one to do good works. But those good works, works of faith, are what justifies. And that means further that the sins which we now commit must yet be paid. Those sins must be covered by penance and counterbalanced by good works until the good works are more than the sins committed. That's Roman Catholicism. And then they add to that, because very rare is the person who does more good works than sins, that the cleansing of sins will only take place fully 
by bearing the temporal punishment of purgatory, which is really temporary hell. Only when the believer is fully purged from all stains of sin in purgatory will, the right, will he be righteous in God's eyes and obtain heaven. You see, there is a great divide between the truth of Scripture and Roman Catholicism. A great divide. Justification by faith alone is more than a slogan of the Reformation. It's the definitive issue in understanding how God makes the sinner just and how we receive salvation. But the same objections to justification being entirely of grace apart from works also comes from many others within the church of Protestantism. Multitudes want to find merit in works. I would hate to tell you the number of people with whom I've had conversation in times past about salvation in which I would ask them about their confidence of heaven. And it's a very common thing to have a person say, oh yes, I'm sure I'm going to heaven when I die. What makes you think that? I've led a good life. I've done my best to walk as a Christian. I go to church every Sunday. Brought my children up in the church. I give to charitable causes. I get along with everyone. I, I, I. And when I hear such an answer, I tremble. And I've heard that kind of talk even from people within our own churches. Ask them to give account of their hope and their salvation. And they immediately point to their works. I tremble. When that's one's perspective, there can only be one response. I fear, my friend, you do not know what it is to be saved. Because that perspective is clearly spoken of by Christ in Matthew chapter 7, in the most fearful terms. Those who stand before Christ in the judgment and bring to him their wonderful works will hear the words, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. The man who's drowning in a rushing river may grasp at every straw and twig that comes within his reach. But as surely as the straw gives way and the drowning man sinks, so sure it is that all works and all means that would be used by us to preserve our life shall surely fail. Without Christ, we perish. Whether those works be robed in religion, or prayers, or be entirely outside religion, makes no difference. If, it's, if salvation is not of free grace, sovereign grace, we have no righteousness. Make no mistake about it. Our life is in Christ alone. Why cannot our good works be the whole or part of our righteousness before God? Because that righteousness which can be approved by God before the tribunal of God must be absolutely perfect. 
and in all respects conformable to the divine law, and also that our best works in this life are all imperfect and defiled with sin. Our works are never perfect. Never. It's true that we who are the children of God live by faith. That's true. That doesn't mean that our old man is no longer there. That old man of sin still influences everything we do. So much so that Isaiah writes in Isaiah 64 verse 6 as our catechism refers to it, but we are all as an unclean thing. And all our righteousnesses are as filthy rags. And we all do fade as a leaf and our iniquities like the wind have taken us away. And if we examine our own conscience and place all our works in the light of God's holy word and his requirements, we'll confess that too. Our works are defiled with sin, all imperfect. Even our best works, even our prayers, for example, which we carefully pray and give full concentration to. And how often do we do that? But even they are defiled with our imperfections and sin so that they must be sanctified by the Holy Spirit and prayed in Jesus' name. But besides, the very nature of our calling before God makes all merit impossible. Suppose that our works of faith were perfect. They are not. But suppose they were. Would they then merit anything with God? Would they earn anything with him? It's claimed by many that in paradise, Adam had the capability of meriting eternal life. They refer to a covenant of works. Well, you find nothing in scripture of that. Nothing at all. And the reason is, man can merit nothing by his good works. Why? Because we're obligated to do good works. Every person must do good works. That's his or her calling before God. Failure to do good works brings damnation. But the exercise of good works does not merit. It was simply our obligation. And so the catechism points us to Luke 17, verse 10. So likewise ye, when ye shall have done all those things which are commanded you, say, we are unprofitable servants. We have done that which was our duty to do. Heaven is not some kind of manufacturing plant which a man earns as wages. God doesn't want wage earners in his house. He will have free sons and daughters serving him willingly whose justification has been entirely of him sovereignly worked of his grace alone. What then? Is there no place for good works? If good works do not merit, are they even necessary? Well, from one point of view, I've already answered that question. Good works are our obligation. No man escapes the calling to love God and to walk perfectly in all good works. 
But there is certainly more for the Christian. For us, good works are the fruit of justification. The fruit of justification. What God has formed uh, as a good tree must bring forth good fruit. Do we do good works? Do Christians bring forth the fruits of righteousness? Yes, indeed. We speak of righteousness by faith, beloved. But don't forget that truth stands in connection with the whole counsel of God. And the scriptures plainly teach that faith without works is dead. Works can never merit. Works are never performed by the Christian in the attempt of earning something with God. But faith is seen in its fruit. And the fruits of faith, the fruits of righteousness, are good works. No question about that. And we don't talk merely of appearance, because appearances can deceive. There are those who appear clean on the surface, but inward they are full of dead men's bones and of all uncleanness, as Jesus said. There are those whose works are not motivated by thankfulness to God, but are forced by their own circumstances, family pressure, pressure from the church, a desire to show social conformity. So when, when we elders have to labor with someone who's wayward, we have to be sure as best we are able that we're not being deceived by mere conformity, outward conformity. Why is the person walking the way he or she is? What are the issues of the heart involved in that sinful walk? Because again, it's possible for one to conform merely to fit into the church, to fit into family. And such works though they might appear beautiful outward, are seen by God as evil fruits of unrighteousness. Good works are spiritual fruit, which that which the Spirit works in those who are justified. The fruits of justification are seen in the spiritual fruits of the heart, those spiritual fruits that then come to expression in striving to walk in thankfulness to God according to all God's commandments. Fruits of justification are seen in repentance and in a hungering and thirsting for God's fellowship and greater enjoyment of his grace and glory. They are the fruits of a spiritual sensitivity for the honor of God and a desire to glorify him. Justification bears fruits in the consciousness of God's absolute holiness and the exceeding sinfulness of sin. In the fervent desire to humble ourselves before God in submission to his holy word and will. And as the fruit of justification, good works also have their reward. That's certainly biblical. We read in Matthew 16, verse 27, for example, For the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and then he shall reward every man according to his works. Not because of his works, according to his works. That reward is not of merit. It's entirely of grace. 
So our merciful God encourages us in our walk of faith. So the reward of grace is this. Christ merited everything for us. He merited our righteousness, the forgiveness of our sins. He merited life everlasting. He merited for us the privilege to do good works, not only in this life, but also in the light in the world to come. Christ merited our gifts with which we serve him. Christ merited it all. And so the joy of our hearts in serving God is a joy worked by the Spirit of Christ in us. He fills our hearts with deep gratitude, with the desire to serve him. It's all of him. As we read in Ephesians 2 verse 10, for we are his workmanship created in Christ Jesus unto good works which God hath before ordained that we should walk in them. What shall we say then about that final objection? Doesn't this doctrine all of God, none of us, make man careless and profane? Impossible. Impossible. That a Christian, a true child of God, should have a careless attitude about how he lives? It's impossible. The Apostle Paul faced essentially this same objection when holding forth the truth of God's absolute sovereignty and salvation. We read it in the opening verses of Romans 6. We read it earlier. What shall we say then? Shall we continue in sin that grace may abound? If salvation's all of God, none of us, if justification is entirely of grace, works contribute nothing, why shouldn't we just live as we please? Without regard to doing good works. And the answer of the inspired apostle was this. God forbid. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? You know that objection cannot arise from the Christian. The very thought of continuing in sin and ignoring all expressions of gratitude to God is absolutely foreign to the one who has been a recipient of the grace of God and his sovereign work in our salvation. Perhaps I can use an illustration to get this point across. Picture, if you will, a married woman who claims to be a Christian and a husband who is a powerful example of the demonst in demonstrating the loving Christ. He's a man who willingly gives himself for the sake of his wife, who provides for her, who loves her, who watches for her spiritual and physical welfare and all the rest. But that husband has to go away for a while. Perhaps it's his business that calls him away for a while, let's say even a month. And while he's gone, he makes notes each day and he he emails his wife, he calls her, he texts her. He calls her at every opportunity to talk with her, to find out how things are going for her and the children, and to tell her of his day, to have fellowship with her, at least in that limited way. But his wife doesn't open his email. And doesn't look at his text. When she answers the phone, she sets the phone, puts the phone on speaker and sets it down and 
pays little attention to what he says other than saying, "Uh uh-huh, to make him think that she's listening and cares. And still more, she decides that while he's gone, she will do things she wouldn't think of doing while he's around. So she sells various gifts that he has given her and spends money to buy the clothing of a whore and goes from bar to bar attempting to find a man to bring home with her each night. You say, what an abominable woman. What a picture of a wicked woman. It's impossible that a godly wife who has a godly husband should live that way. And you are correct. The church, which is the bride of Christ, cannot ignore her husband and reject him. When he sets his word before those whom he loves, they receive that word with a thankfulness that cannot be expressed and long to see him face to face. The people of God justified by the precious blood of Christ through faith, cannot despise him and walk contrary to his word. John writes in 1 John 1 verse 6, if we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not the truth. careless and profane Christian is an impossibility. It's a contradiction in terms. How shall we that are dead to sin live any longer therein? Oh yes, sin is still present with us. Constantly It seeks to gain lordship over us and to tear us down. But we who have been justified by the precious blood of the Lamb are dead to sin. That is, our attitude now has radically changed. We are converted. And that conversion comes to expression daily as we humble ourselves before God confess our sins, and repent, having no rest until we have found forgiveness anew at the cross. To live in holiness is our desire. When we are righteous before God, for we cannot rest without expressing our thanks to him who alone could save us. Amen. Heavenly Father, God of all mercy and all grace, we thank thee for thy goodness, for thy word, and for the truth which thou hast revealed to us. Give us grace to understand and to believe and to take it to ourselves that we may know that we are saved by grace alone through faith and that not of ourselves, but entirely of thee, to whom alone belongs all glory and praise now and forever. Amen.